welcome to this episode of Stories of Hope by Kangaroo Minds. I'm Vedika and today we have with us Kath Kosher. Kath is the founder of Kindness Factory, which is a global not-for-profit movement, which inspires ordinary people to do extraordinary things. A former cricketer and Ironman competitor, Kath's own experiences with personal, physical, as well as mental setbacks and her own resilience through her journey inspired her to see the good in everyday situations. It is this which has been the foundation for all her work. Kath has also received the Pride of Australia Medal, the Young Australian Medal, as well as the People's Choice of Australia Award. Before we begin to hear more from Kath about her journey with her mental health, we'd like to put out a trigger warning for our audiences. If at any point during this conversation, should you find yourself feeling triggered or distressed, we urge you to take a step back and look after yourself. Should you need any additional support resources, you can also find them on our website. And now, without taking much time, I'm going to hand over to Kath to share with us more about her story. Kath, welcome to the episode. It's really lovely to have you with us today. And, you know, while I know a lot about your journey and everything that you've been through, I'm really looking forward to sharing, you know, having that from you with our audiences. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a, yeah, I mean, it's so nice to be asked um, to, to be with you all today and to, to share part of my journey with everyone as well. So I really appreciate it. No, thank you for that. Thank you for taking our time. I think, you know, everything that you've been through from a physical health, a mental health perspective, as well as the way you've bounced back from it, not just once, but in fact, twice. And, you know, the way you carry on the work that you're doing, I think that's going to be really inspiring for everyone to hear today. Uh, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. So over to you, Kat. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, well, I guess I'll sort of go back a little bit in time. I'm I'm from a, a really tiny country town in regional New South Wales of, of Australia. And so whatsoever, uh, lots of land. I've got three older brothers. Um, and so I was the youngest of four kids and, and the only girl. And um, at a very early age, you know, I was in the backyard playing cricket with my brothers and dad and they love the game just as much as I do. And um, I, I guess I got sick of chasing their balls around the backyard and really wanted to have a go at it myself. And so, you know, dad helped me out a little bit and signed me up for the local cricket competition or the boys competition when I was eight years, um, eight years old. So um, my love of cricket only grew, um, you know, from that backyard into them playing competitive sport on a weekend and then um, I guess at about 40 years that um, I was I was pretty good at it um, and that I really wanted to give it a go of, of, of going or taking um, a career in sport or in cricket um, as far as I could um, and I, I set my sights on wanting to represent Australia at a very early age. Um, I think it was a combination of knowing that I was okay or there or thereabouts, but mostly just a, a pure love for the game. I loved playing with my mates on the weekend and I think any in any team sport, um, it's always nice to be a part of something a bit bigger than yourself and your family and all those sorts of things as well. So I always sort of felt like I had, you know, 10 other best mates that I was running out onto the park to play with. And um, it was always when I was my happiest when I was on a, on a park playing cricket. So um, I, as I said, I sort of lacked a little bit of natural ability or, um, I guess, you know, all of the coaches and, and, um, the specialists within cricket sort of said to me, we love your grit and, and your passion and your work ethic, but we don't really think that you're ever going to make it to the level that you're aspiring towards as in playing for Australia. So maybe you should focus in a, you know, a sports administration career or something like that. And, 
um, I guess that sort of taught me something and, and that is that, you know, when you you want something bad enough and you're willing to work hard enough that, you know, it sometimes can be achievable. And so I just trained and played as hard as I could and I fast-tracked my uni degree when I was 20 to, to go to the, to the UK and, and play for Middlesex and all those sorts of things just so that I could refine my craft as a batter and, and come back with a, a better case to put forward to the selectors and things like that. And I was handed, I guess, my first opportunity to play professional sport in January of 2011. So I ended up debuting for, for New South mm-hmm. Wales um, in a player of the match performance. And honestly, it was it was a completely euphoric feeling. Uh, I, I felt like, you know, my whole life had started to make sense to me. I'd been working for this goal for so long and, and it had finally happened and I got I performed well and all those sorts of things. And, um, you know, I set the bar even higher after that to try and keep, keep going and on the trajectory that I was on and all those sorts of things. But four games into my career, um, it all sort of left me very suddenly and, and very quickly and abruptly. Um, and my life changed in a very big way when I, I broke my back, of all things, playing cricket. So um, I was fielding in cover, which is the position between the batter and the bowler. And um, the ball got hit past me very quickly. And as I twisted to, to go and chase the ball, um, the disc in my spine came out so quickly that the two vertebrae had nowhere to go. And they cracked onto each other and part of the bottom vertebrae cracked off and went straight into my spinal cord. So um, I was 23 and immediately couldn't feel anything below my waist. Um, I was airlifted to the nearest hospital and had five unsuccessful surgeries. And they said to me, mate, not only is this dream just gone of playing cricket, but it's life in a wheelchair. You've got a diagnosis mm-hmm. of paraplegia. You're never going to walk again, all those sorts of things. And I ended up having, I guess, a very new age surgery to try and rectify that problem. Um, And I think at this point, you know, I was a very normal, happy young kid growing up, um, no adversities to speak of and and no sign of mental ill health up until this sort of point in my life. And, you know, um, as adversity strikes, sometimes we're prepared for it and other times we we aren't. And um, in these moments, I I certainly wasn't. It was something that I didn't have any time to to prepare for. Um, It just happened in in a very... You know, mm-hmm. sudden way, it was instant almost. And um, I don't think my mental health had declined too much at this point. I think the shock of it all, to be honest, protected me from a decline in my mental health um, at that point in time. And it was almost like I had to go in, into damage control a little bit and just have the surgery and get through it and recover and see if I could walk and feel and all those sorts of things. But I ended up having a very new age surgery to try and rectify the problem, which seemed to give us a, uh, an immediate sense of relief in that some of the feeling came back to me but um, there was a post-surgical complication that ended up seeing me come within hours of of having my leg amputated um, which made everything a lot more compounded Mm -hmm. and complicated as you can imagine and I woke up from more surgery after fixing that problem and um, they said to me look mate um, you're not out of the woods yet you need to stay healthy um, and get these you know these issues all and if you ever want the chance again at walking you should go to rehab so six to 12 months um pack up your life quit your job all those sorts of things and honestly I'd never heard of rehab for that period of time I thought it was a you know six-week course would would normally be the max time that you'd spend in a rehab facility not not six to 12 months that's you know that's a lot of time um especially for someone who was as young and, and active as what I had been up until that point and um, it was a real struggle for me, to be honest. Um, you know, there were 
I was surrounded by the elderly in rehab. There were, you know, 65-year-olds, 75-year-olds, 85-year-olds, but no one really that looks like me or had my kind of injuries, certainly in the first couple of months that I was there. But I do remember calling my best friend about a week into my stay and I was struggling so deeply. I remember how badly I was struggling and, and the feeling that I felt or the feelings that I was feeling in that. I just kept thinking to myself, I've, I've barely gotten through the first week of this and, and I've got another year to go. How on earth is that possible? And I remember calling my best friend, Erin, um, also a professional cricketer. Um, and I said, look, I'm, I'm really struggling. And I had tears running down my face. And I said, um, could you come and pick me up? And she was really confused. And she said, what, what do you mean, Kath? Um, I come and visited you yesterday. You're in rehab. We know that. Six to 12 months. What do you mean pick you up? And I said, oh. I said, I really don't care what happens to the rest of my physical health. I said, I, I just don't think I can do this. Not six to 12 months of it. And I'll never forget what she said to me, um, which I think really highlights the importance of, of support networks and mm -hmm. people in your life that can have your back when you can't seem to have it yourself when you're in that struggle or in that really deep hole of, of, of struggle. And she said to me, mate, it's, it's absolutely killing me to hear you like this. Um, and she was crying at this point as well. And, and, and neither of us are really overly emotional people. So um, even that was a shock to hear each other upset. And she said, I, I can't do this for you. I wish I could. Um, you're my best friend. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do for you, but I can't. And that's breaking me. Um, what I can do is I can guarantee you this. If you pick up the phone at any hour of the day and you call me, I'll pick up and I'll answer and we're going to walk this journey side by side together. Um, let's get through this together. I've got your back and, um, and let's go. And um, I, I think it's exactly what I needed to hear. And when I tell people this story, they're like, is that a lot of tough love? And I, I think it is a bit, but I think what Erin saw was that I, I was stuck in that situation and there really wasn't any alternative. I, I couldn't go anywhere else. It meant that my health would decline drastically. Um, but what she did for me in that moment was, she gave me a platform to just be whoever I was. Um, it was okay for me to struggle. Um, I didn't have to get mm. through the things that I needed to in order to walk perfectly. I just had to try. Um, and I think knowing that I had her at any moment just by dialing a, a phone um, was all the, I guess, reassurance that I needed to then commit myself to the process as well. So um, that meant everything. And it, and it really, honestly, I wouldn't be walking today without her or, or the other supports that I've had in my life as well. But my luck changed four weeks into my stay. I met a, a fellow patient. His name was Jim. Um, he was, he had a very, you know, strong athlete background um, as well, but he injured his spine um, doing a, a, an obstacle race, a Tough Mudder obstacle race. So he'd fallen awkwardly from a height and fractured part of his spine as well. And mm -hmm. Well, very similar age, mindset, background. Um, and when he got, got there, I could see, I guess, the, the overwhelm in his face, uh, the emotions that he was feeling being in that new environment. And, you know, it was only me four weeks prior to that. And so I thought, wow, it would have been nice if I had someone to reassure me when I got there. Um, so I just took it upon myself to, to be that person for him. I introduced myself and showed him, you know, all around rehab, gave him a tour, all those sorts of things. And um, and very quickly, you know, we started off as friends, um, but very quickly and much to my surprise, we, we fell in love in rehab, which is a, it's pretty amazing. I mean, who finds love in a rehab centre? Um, I did. And, and it was, yeah, honestly, one of the, the, you know, the best experiences of my life. I remember three months into our relationship, having, you know, sitting down, having a coffee mm -hmm. and reflecting on 
on my journey to that point. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I'm so, I'm so grateful that I broke my back, um, which is sounds really silly to even say, but I just remember thinking if I hadn't have, I wouldn't have ended up here and, and met the person who I want to spend the rest of my life with. And, you know, we were like normal young kids in love in, instead of long walks on the beach, you know, it was wheelchair races in the corridor and, and all those sorts of things. And I guess what made our time a little bit more bearable in rehab was, was dreaming of a life that would exist outside of rehab. So, for us, that looked like, you know, kids, house, Gold Coast living, um, pet turtles, dogs, all those sorts of things. And um, and I guess we really, I guess, um, accelerated our rehab journey in learning to walk um, just so that we could have that life that we were dreaming together and all those sorts of things. And we'd been going out for 12 months when I was now walking independently, which was fantastic. And, you know, I felt like an amazing thing to be able to do considering you know, the prognosis that I'd been given at the start of my journey. And I was considered an outpatient 12 months into our relationship, which just meant that I went to rehab three mornings a week and did some exercises and then I could go home or to work. And mm-hmm. Jim had a day to go before he was to be considered an outpatient. Um, we just put the lease on the house together and all of the dreams that we'd been dreaming were about to come true the next day when that night he he passed away very tragically. Um, so it was, it was via suicide and it just left me absolutely crushed beyond belief. I um, I really lost all sense of self, I think, um, in his passing. You know, um, 10 months after his passing, I had a complete emotional mental breakdown and it was very ugly and, and a very scary and vulnerable time for me. Um, I'd never really, as I said, experienced any sort of sign of mental ill health, even throughout, you know, breaking my back and the physical injuries and all those sorts of things. And then, I guess, you know, I lose this dream of of playing cricket and then I lost the person who told me that there was so much more to life than, than playing cricket and it really it really hurt. Um, I, I mean, I, there's all sorts of adversities that I've been through in life and there's a bit more to come still um, from a physical standpoint, but by far the hardest challenge that I've ever had to face was overcoming the mental barrier of losing him mm. and I was given a, a PTS, a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis about 10 months after his passing. Um, and to be honest, I was really confronted, not by the stigma of psychologists or a mental illness or anything like that. I think what really worried me was, you know, if I go and seek help for this and really try and unpack what it is that I'm feeling, um, you know, I'm going to have to hear what I have to, what I've been thinking for a long time now. And am I ready to hear that? Is that going to, is it going to be really confronting? Um, am I ready to hear what my thoughts are? And I, I don't know that I was, which I think is what prolonged, um, I guess, me seeking that help in or being more active in that help seeking behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really had, for me, I really needed to hit rock bottom before I accessed the support that I needed. And Um, I think hitting rock bottom and having the mental breakdown that I did, um, I found a few things, Um, you know, the first, I guess, the power of gratitude. I remember sitting down at a coffee table one day and there was a piece of paper and a pen and I don't know why I did what I did next, but I'm so glad that it happened. I picked up the pen and I wrote down a list of names of people who had ever helped me in my life and I realised how very lucky I was, Mm. not in having gone through adversity, but more so the fact that I always, I've never once failed to have support in my life my family are amazing my friends are phenomenal people as well and they've always shown up for me and I remember thinking wow I have been through a lot but I'm so lucky to have the people in my life that I do and I I called every single one of those people just to say thanks and 
um, there's a, a pretty cool saying about gratitude. Um, I mean, we hear so much about it now, um, the science of it and all those sorts of things. But I say this thing about gratitude, um, you know, feeling it and not expressing it is almost like um, thinking about your best friend's birthday, who's, you know, their birthday's coming up and you think, well, I wonder what that's like for their birthday. So you go to the shop and you figure it out and you buy it and you put the gift wrapping on it and you put a bow on it and you go to all this effort of considering what it is that you think they might like. And then you take it home and you put it in the cupboard and you never give it to them. Um, right. It's a bit of a waste, right? So what I now encourage people to do is, you know, we, most of us have people in our life that we can be grateful for or things even or experiences that we're grateful for. Um, if it's a person who's been in your life, like a, a, a sibling or a partner or a, a parent or a child even, have you told them? Yeah. Have you told them that their existence in your life matters and that you're grateful for their existence and what they've done for you? And almost always whenever I share this on a stage somewhere as a, I, I speak all around the world now, um, I, I can see people getting their phones out. And it's almost like they're texting that person to say, hey, I just wanted to thank you for, you know, being in my life and all those sorts of things, which is just so wonderful. I, I think the best part about gratitude is we don't have to f face or suffer adversity before we use it, right? It's such a powerful mm -hmm. tool. And, um, there's so much science out there that suggests why it's so helpful. And for me, you know, in that moment of rock bottom, when I, went through that process of practicing gratitude and calling those people. Um, my life wasn't suddenly amazing. Don't get me wrong. Um, it wasn't a quick fix or anything like that. I think I just realized that I was very lucky and that so long as I surrounded myself with those people that I'd, I'd be okay. And so I came back to Sydney um, and in addition to many things, I'd, you know, started accessing the support of a psychologist and we went on a, a two-year processing journey of, um, I guess, all that I'd lost in, in yeah. physical capabilities, but also in the grief of Jim and all those sorts of things. And I think at the same time, you know, my story had become quite public and a lot of people would reach out saying, you know, um, wow, it's, a, it's an amazing story and I'm so glad that you're still here today and all those sorts of things. But, you know, what have you learned from this? Um, if there's one thing that stands out to you, good, bad or ugly, like what is it? And for me, the answer has always been kindness. Um, you know, um, when you're in a wheelchair like I have been and you, you can't reach a lift button and a random stranger walks past and they see that struggle and they press that button for you and it meant nothing to their day but everything to yours. Um, I think those moments are so powerful and, I guess in saying or answering those people, I, I recognised that kindness had been a very key thing for me to be able to overcome the things that I had. I guess it made me more resilient. And so I decided in that moment that I would, you know, being in the position of physical, physically and, and emotionally well enough position to do so that I'd give back some of the kindness that I'd received. So I started doing small things for other people, yeah. which is how kindness factory was born it was a social media page where i would go out and buy a random strangers coffee or their petrol or whatever it was and people would share it on social media and it got quite catchy like lots of people wanting to sort of you know like do the same yeah. thing and all that kind of stuff and um so life was good I, I sort of committed myself i guess to this purpose of kindness and um it's always when my life whenever i'm in a kind state so either i'm giving or receiving kindness um my, my life makes so much more sense to me and so I embraced that kind of lifestyle, which was great and, um, you know, raised a lot of money for charity and all those sorts of things, which was awesome. And I went back to rehab for a routine checkup with one of my legs and got into a conversation with the doctors there. And I said, look, we're, we're actually ready to discharge you for life. Like you're going so well. We're really proud of your, your journey. And I said, look, before you do, I've got a question. I, I really miss competitive sports. So playing cricket 
was part of who I am. I, I can't do that anymore because I can't, I'm, I'm disabled. I can't feel part of my left leg, but is there anything else you think that I could do? And they said to me, look, it would make sense to us that your recovery was based in a pool and on a bike. If you added in a run, you could you know, get into triathlons. Why don't you give yeah. that a go? And I said, okay. So I signed up for a tester and loved it and, and then got into the really endurance side of the sport and was the first person with my disability to do a half Ironman and then ended up qualifying for a full Ironman, um, which is, you know, a 3.8K swim, 180-kilometre bike ride and a, a full marathon at the end. So I was pretty fit and... Training was on track and I ended up going for a, a training bike ride four months out from the event with my two best friends. And um, I was nearly at the halfway mark and um, was making my way into a right-hand turn lane and suddenly I felt a thud on my body and, and everything went black all of a sudden. Um, I got hit by a, a drunk driver from behind and, and broke my back again. So this time in four places, I shattered my left hip, broke my right wrist and, and dislocated my neck. And... I woke up from a coma two weeks later to the news that I was paralyzed and told that I would never walk again for the second time in my life. So I was pretty down and out, as you can imagine. Um, you know, I'm a human being just like the rest of us. And I was so exhausted from having done it once, as in learning how to walk again. And I wasn't sure that I had it in me to do it again. But I think, again, sort of perspective hit me. I, I was in an ICU ward and there were four beds in that ward. And, you know, almost every day the, the patients next to me, the beds would change and a different person would come in. And I learned halfway through that period that a lot of those people weren't making it. And that really hit me. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm still breathing. I'm going OK. I just need to fight through another day and get through this and, and go from there. And, um, you know, I had to go into rehab for six months again to learn how to walk again um, when everyone kept telling me I wouldn't. And that was a, a struggle in itself, to be honest. Um, I think it was probably more of a mental struggle than it was a, a physical one, um, whereby I guess I was still very scarred um, from what had happened to me in, you know, rehab the first time and all those sorts of things in, in losing my partner and, and all of those things. And, um uh, I guess I got through that again with the help and love of, of people in my life who showed up for me. And um, I recognised when I was well enough to do so that kindness had saved my life once. Why couldn't it again? So I ended up leaving my home one day when I was well enough physically uh, with nothing but the clothes on my back. So no cash, credit card, food or water and no help off immediate family or friends. I had to survive off of people strangers essentially um and I didn't know if I'd last an hour or a week or however long would it be but um ended up on media stations all around the world and 10,000 people reached out to help me and um I ended up traveling for two months to every single state in Australia um and it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life um you know, I was fed by the homeless, I fed the homeless, celebrities got involved, um, I travelled by boat, uh, stayed in tents, five-star accommodation, you name it, I kind of did it. And I recognised uh, two months into the journey that I was no longer telling the stories of, of myself, I was more so mm -hmm. telling the stories of all the people that were helping me. Um, and they are the most amazing people who have stories of heartbreak and adversities just like the rest of us. And I guess it put my life into perspective whereby... I recognise that I'm not the only one that's been through adversities um, and that adversity, in essence, is really just such a relative experience. Um, you know, I think it, adversity affects us all in very different ways, depending on what we've got going on and all those sorts mm -hmm. of things. So it was great to be able to share that experience with all these people. And I really haven't stopped since. I mean, I, I don't live off kindness anymore, but 
since that moment, a lot of people were really intrigued in my story and why I was doing what I was doing. And so I started traveling the world as a motivational speaker um, and, you know, set a goal to reach 1 million acts of kindness. So I think people were inspired by me doing kindness. And I was like, it's on all of us to do kindness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to one small act of kindness a day. And so we're now at 4 million acts of kindness from all around the world where people have logged an act and done something for someone else and, you know, had, had an experience of human connection that may not ha- have existed prior to that, um, which has been phenomenal. And it's now in um, in two countries via a kindness curriculum as well, where I think I was really proud to tell my story to adults, um, but also mm-hmm. wanted kids to experience it in a very digestible way. And so, I partnered with an education provider called Kaplan um, who helped me bring that curriculum to life. So, um, you know, from a teaching standpoint, we broke it into 12 themes or attributes, which are things like um, collaboration, compassion, empathy, perspective, humour, humility, those sorts of things. Um, And it's now been accessed by 3,000 Aussie schools, which is going great. Um, And as an organisation or a not-for-profit in two countries here in the US, so Australia and the US, um, I guess that's our mission now is to try and inspire a generational change of kindness. Mm-hmm. And not only will we see communities change, as in see kinder communities and people or more, more cohesive communities, but I think also we'll see better mental health outcomes for our children, um, as well as, you know, resilience and perspective taking and, and all the rest of the wonderful things that it encompasses. So, um, yeah, it's been a, an amazing journey so far. Um but I guess um, now I feel like it's one that I'm, I'm not really no longer in control of, but in the most amazing way as well. I'm completely comfortable with that and just really want to see where it gets to next. But um, that's, I guess, me in a, in a nutshell. I know it's been a, a long, that's a long way for me to answer that question. But um, I guess that's my background. So I might throw it to you and, and see if there's any questions that you want to sort of specifically draw out of, of me in terms of any of what I've just spoke about as well. I think it's really interesting and, you know, thank you for sharing that story with us because, you know, just seeing the different uh, points that you went through, like, you know, just the sort of the high points as well as the low points in your journey and sort of how, like, the kindness that you experienced and the gratitude that you had towards, you know, people in your life, whether it was friends, family, or like the healthcare professionals who supported you, but also towards strangers who kind of came forward towards helping you along your journey. I think that's also been interesting on how that shapes sort of the work that you're doing at the Kindness Factory. But one thing I wanted to ask you is that, you know, you mentioned how, you know, for instance, your friend was there for you and you had that bit of tough tough love and the things that she said sort of were very helpful for you. But, you know, we all sometimes when we're going through a mental health struggle, sometimes, you know, it comes from a place of stigma, sometimes it comes from a place of not knowing better, but we all end up saying things which are both helpful as well as unhelpful towards someone who's having a hard time. So can you share a little bit of the things that, you know, you were told along your journey, which, you know, helped you, but at the same time, some things which were not so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do remember after I got hit by the car, so the second time I broke my back and um, there was a, it was actually, um, it was wonderful to see so many people reach out wanting to support me Um but outside of my very close circle, um, I found it very overwhelming uh, to hear from that many people, to be honest, and some I hadn't heard from in, you know, 10, 20 years. So 
Um, and I felt pressured to try and get back to them and all those sorts of things. And some people got offended if I didn't get back to them. And it was just a, it was a bit of a nightmare in that sense that um, I was trying to work on my own self, but then mm -hmm. having to worry about the feelings of others as well. So I think once I recognised I needed to take a lot of, a bit more pressure off me to be perfect and to just get through each day at a time, that was a, a good realisation for me. But with all of those people that reached out, a lot of them said to me, um, they said, you know, you've done this once before, you can do it again. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I really struggled with that, to be honest, and it, it irritated me a little bit um, in that I was like, I have done it once before and it was near impossible. Um, I don't know if I've got this in me to do it again. Um, and so I think sometimes, um, you know, I guess my life story has been one of some some really big lows but some, some really incredible highs as well and um and I'm really grateful for my life and all those sorts of things but it has been a struggle and I just kept thinking what if I'm just tired um uh, another thing that someone said to me um two or three people actually they said um God gives his toughest battles to his strongest mm. soldiers yeah. and I just <laughs> I just, I, I, I really grappled with that. I really did. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm so, I'm so exhausted and I don't know how I'm going to get through what I need to get through next. And I, it's just not helpful. It really wasn't helpful. Um, I just, you know, I think I needed the realness. I needed the authenticity of, um, of family and friends who would show up and they'd show me emotion and they would cry with me if they needed to. Um, and, you know, my best friend, Erin, who I mentioned called me my first time in rehab, was actually with me when I got hit by by the car as well. And so, you know, her and I as best friends have been through tremendously hard times together. And, and, and I like to think I've been able to support her through her own struggles as well, which has been nice. But um, I remember her showing up um, day after day. She would be there. Um, the, the first day that, you know, the day that I got hit, I looked at her 24 hours later and she was still in her cycling gear. So she hadn't gone home for a shower or anything. She just wouldn't leave my side. And um, and day after day, she would show up and she would put on a, a strong front. And um, her partner at the time told me that she was devastated. So every time she'd get home, she'd break down into tears. And she was absolutely devastated for me, having to watch her friend go through what I was. And and I said, really? Because every time she shows up, I feel I've got to keep my like everything together that I can't show the emotion to her because I don't want. And she's like, well, you two are doing exactly the same thing because you're trying to protect each other from your own emotions. And as soon as I, I knew that, the next time she came in, I just said to her, this, this is really hard. And I burst into tears and so did she. And I think it was a great step for us to just go, let's just be really real about this. Um, if I don't bounce back from it, you know, and walk like everyone wants me to, then that's okay. Like, I don't need to put pressure on it. Um, I'm going to always try my best, but let's not put any pressure on this and, and let's acknowledge it for what it was or for what it is. It, it's really hard. Um, and I think the same applies to life in, in any situation. You don't have to get hit for a, by a car or break your back for life to be hard. Um, you know, it might be you break up with a, a partner or, you know, someone passes away or a pet you know, whatever it is that the struggle is, or you get some bad news or, you know, there's a tough meeting at work or whatever it is. It, I don't think we should ever diminish our struggle ever. Um, and for whatever reason that it's impacting us, if it is at a deep scale, um, let it be what it is and and sit with it. And, and, and you don't have to have the answers immediately either. You can have them down the track um, and nothing has to make sense 
when you're in the thick of it either. Um, I think we sometimes need to give ourselves a little bit of love and a little bit of kindness and some patience as well. Um, but yeah, there were there were a few things that sort of happened that were and weren't helpful and um, you know, there, there, there are a few things, but I think, um, as well, there's no animosity that I feel towards or against those people more. So I think they were trying to be helpful, but just didn't really know how, um, in, in certain parts. So, um, honestly, the best thing that anyone ever did for me was just show up and, and hold my hand, um, and, and sat with me in the struggle rather than having words or finding words. And I think, you know, now I'd like to think, you know, I hear from a lot of people, some people that I know really well and others that I don't who might share part of their struggle or their story with me. And I always sort of say to them, I don't have the answer for you. I'm, you know, and I, I don't think anyone does, even a professional, right? Um, but I don't think in supporting others, we need to have the answers necessarily. I think we just need to hold some of that pain for people to say, someday this is going to be okay. Right now, we know it's not because I can see the pain in, in your heart, in your eyes, whatever it is. Um, but one day it is going to be okay. And um, until then, I, I'm here. Um, and whatever it is that you need, then we'll get through it together. I think that's, you know, they're the, they're the most powerful things I think occurred for me when I was struggling um, the deepest. And, you know, just as you said, you know, sometimes just holding space for people and not always having solutions, because sometimes we feel that when we see someone who we deeply care about, when we see them struggling, we have this urge that, no, I have to have the right thing to say, or I have to have a solution to their problem. And that's not always what we have, but just sort of being there or, you know, giving them hope that we're going to get through this can also go such a long way, right? Yeah. Wrapping up, you know, everything that we've spoken about, Kath, what would be, you know, some advice that you would give to anyone who's watching this right now or listening to this who might be having a hard time with their mental health? Um, I think acknowledge it would be the first thing. So, um, you, and and I'm guilty of, of not being great at this at times, even, even now. Um, you know, life gets busy, pressure is placed on all of us mm -hmm. in whatever way. Um, and we sometimes just push it to the side, you know, our emotions or our struggle mm -hmm. or our mental health or whatever it is. And, and we just hope that it's going to get better. Um, you know, it's okay to do sometimes. Uh, I think not all the time. So I think the, the most important thing you can do is, it's, is take a moment to acknowledge what it is that you're feeling and experiencing. And, and I think only when we've acknowledged what it is um, that we can start to understand it a little bit more. Um, and then I guess obviously the next step is, what is it that I need today? Um, is it to, to phone a friend and and not even tell them that I'm struggling, but maybe just to hear how their day was so that mm -hmm. I can get a bit of an escape from this? Or do I need to seek help off a professional? Is this deeper than, you know, um, surface level um, that I'm really, really deeply struggling with it? Um, I, I don't have the answers for everyone because I'm not them. So it, it's really hard to sort of pinpoint one thing, but I would, I would, I would say mostly take a moment to, to figure out what you need personally and there's no right or wrong answer to that it's just wherever your mind takes you right um and then go through the process of obviously acting it and, and putting steps and parameters in place to actually achieve better mental health no be thank my... you so much you know thanks for that Kat, and thank you for being here thank you for taking out time to have this conversation and i'm sure you know everything that you've shared along your journey and your learnings from it and you know whatever's helped you what's not been helpful I think that's going to really be inspiring to a lot of people who listen to this today and you know hopefully they're going to take back from this a lot of the lessons around kindness and gratitude that you've shared 
but also the importance of just being there for someone and you know sort of holding space for people that we care about and lastly for anyone who's watching this if you're having a hard time with your mental health right now please know that you know there is help out there and it gets better so don't suffer in silence know that things get better and you deserve to feel better so until next time please stay well and stay healthy thank you